Well, good afternoon, everyone. As always, it is um, a pleasure and, uh, and humbling to, to be up here preaching from the Word of God. Today, as Jason already alluded to, we're going to be continuing our study through the Gospel of John. Now, we are on, if I counted properly, the, the 16th sermon on, um, on this gospel, and we are going to be finishing up chapter 3. Now, you know, up to this point, you know, we've seen a number of things from this gospel, a number of works done by our Lord, our Savior, and many conversations that have, that have taken place. And today we're going to see another a conversation, not with Jesus, but actually with John the Baptist. And by all accounts, at the very least, um, as it pertains to the Gospel of John, this is his fi the final time that we will see John the Baptist speak. And there is something very, very important that he teaches us in his final testimony. And I certainly do hope and pray that as we go through his testimony, that we may glean from this and we may learn from this and apply it in our own lives, whether it be as ministers, parents, children, or anyone that has been called to any particular calling where we are to glorify God, which is everything. Now, even though we're going to be looking at a conversation that happens with John the Baptist, let's not lose sight of the overarching theme of this gospel, which is that this was written to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ and that we have eternal life through believing in him. So with that being said, um, let's first and foremost go to God in prayer, and then we're going to read from the final um, passage or section in chapter three. Our most gracious and heavenly father, Lord, we, we thank you so much for this time that we get to spend now in your word. Um, Lord, I'm humbled to, to, to have to be the one that is standing here preaching to you. And God, I, I truly do ask that you may um, just be with me and equip me, Lord, and enable me to be able to speak faithfully and truthfully what we see in John chapter 3. God, I ask um, that you may keep me from speaking my own words and, and enable me, Lord, only to speak that which is true. And Lord, I pray that all those, Lord, who are here listening, oh God, that you may open their eyes and ears and give them hearts, Lord, to receive what we will be reading and hearing today. So God, be with us now as we enter into your most holy word. And Lord, let this be a time of great reflection, of great conviction, and of great edification. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn to them. Turn into the Gospel of John, and we're going to be reading from verses 22 all the way down to 36. So again, John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, we're going to be reading until the very end of the chapter. So the apostle writes, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal on 
to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. So in this section, as I alluded to, the last time that we're going to hear John the Baptist speak, we see that John acknowledges his need to step aside so that the ministry of Christ can continue on. John the Baptist up to this point has made a name for himself. However, although he was being used by God mightily, he was not the focal point of God's ultimate plan of redemption. Jesus Christ was. John the Baptist served as a forerunner, preparing the way for Christ. Well, Christ has arrived. John himself even alluded to that. And that means that John the Baptist must step aside. You know, there's a lot that we can learn from John the Baptist and his attitude. Something that quite frankly applies to myself as a minister, but also to any one of us who have been given a duty by God to accomplish. We must never forget that whether as a pastor or as a parent or as a spouse or any other person in a position of authority, that the focal point has to be on God and not ourselves. We are servants accomplishing what he wants, and we must never lose sight of that. See, John the Baptist understood that. And it is something that we have to understand as well. So let's go ahead and let's take a look at this verse by verse. First, looking at the first few verses to set up the context of really what's going on here. So we see in verses 22 through 24, um, it's talking about after Jesus finishes his conversation with Nicodemus, him and his disciples go into the land of Judea and then start where they're baptizing. Now, just right there, you know, you're going to have some people that are going to find a problem with the text in verse 22 that talks about Jesus and his disciples going into the land of Judea. And the reason why there are going to be some people, some detractors, who have a problem even with this seemingly innocuous text here, just saying that they went into the land of Judea, is because if you go back to chapter 2, verse 23, we read that Jesus and his disciples were already in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. So how is it that they were in Judea, but then this text here says that they are going into Judea? Seems as though we may have a contradiction here. Seems as though, wait a minute, there is a, uh, an error here. Well, if you've been a member of this church any amount of time, you know certainly that is not the case. The Bible is not, um, is not an error here. So what is it that they're talking about? That they're going into the land of Judea. If they were already in Judea. You know... It can be very easy when we look at texts such as this one and immediately jump to the conclusion that there is a contradiction. You know, when you're operating with the mindset of a skeptic, of an agnostic, you'll come across passages like this and you may reach that conclusion. However, when you're operating with the mindset of faith, it is amazing how God will help you to see and clear up these quote unquote contradictions. In this instance, when the apostle notes that Jesus and the disciples went into the land of Judea, he's simply referring to a different area, perhaps a more rural region in Judea. And to help bolster my point here, let me give you a modern day example that I hope kind of clarifies this. Consider, for example, the city of Tampa. So you have the actual city of Tampa, and then you have Tampa Bay area, which would include Brandon, Riverview, Lithia, Temple Terrace. If you had someone who, let's say, did not live in the Tampa Bay area, maybe someone from California, New York, or Texas, or Georgia, and they're not familiar with Tampa and the Tampa Bay area, it would be fair if you're talking to them and they're asking, hey, where are you? To let them know, hey, I'm in Tampa. Because you are in the Tampa Bay area area itself. 
while it may not be in the absolute technical of terms, you know, the city of Tampa, again, you are certainly within that Tampa Bay area. And likewise, here, the apostle, when he's referring to the land of Judea, he's simply just referring to another region of Judea that was different from the more urban area of Judea, Jerusalem itself, that the disciples were in previously. So again, no, you know, no contradiction here, but it is important, again, to understand this because we live in a day and age to where people will try and find any little thing to quibble about the Bible about, and we can't give that to them. So we see that they go into the land of Judea and Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. Now, when you look ahead in chapter four, then you get a little bit more clarification here because it's not actually Jesus that is baptizing, but his disciples and Jesus, of course, was with him. We see that in chapter four and verse two. But then they are going and they are baptizing. But then John the Baptist and his disciples also are baptizing. Now, in another region in, in Anon itself. And now this is where, you know, we run into a bit of an issue. Because, you see, John and his disciples, they've been baptizing this entire time. And now all of a sudden we see Jesus and his disciples baptizing and then much more people were coming to Jesus to, bat to be baptized and his disciples. And people were coming to John and his disciples to be baptized. And now, while for John, this was not that big of a deal, well, for his disciples, Hey, this is a it's a bit of a problem here. And then we we read and we see in verse 25. So therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. <laughs> you know, I just had to, to to laugh when I saw this because, you know, in our day and age, especially if you are active on social media, on Facebook, on YouTube, then you know that, you know, one of the chief debates that we always see in you know, in these um, spheres is baptism, purification and stuff like that. And I just find it kind of comical that this wasn't just something that happened nowadays, but and also back then as well, as we see with his disciples, John's disciples. You know, you had the followers of John the Baptist talking with Jews in regards to this, the purification rites of the Old Testament. Now, if they truly had a proper understanding of the purification rites of the Old Covenant and baptism, Truthfully, they probably wouldn't have been concerned about what they heard was taking place with Jesus and his disciples. But clearly they did not. And like so many people today, rather than, you know, understand the matter before speaking, they decided, hey, let's debate. That's the best way to learn stuff. It's just debating. Now, we don't know exactly how the discussion went with the Jew, but it more than likely did not go in the way that they would have hoped since now they decided, we see in verse 26, to bring, you know, their, their teacher, John the Baptist, to, to settle the dispute. And I love what Matthew Henry writes here. He, he writes this, commenting on this passage. He said, if these disciples of John had not undertaken to dispute about purifying before they understood the doctrine of baptism, they might have answered the objection without being put into a passion, which is so true. You know, it, it's, it's so important that we don't forget, you know, it's better to just sometimes just not speak and just sit and learn rather than just to, to speak stuff that you don't know about. Now, for those of you that, you know, have, you know, Matthew Henry's commentary, if you continue to read his commentary on this section, he draws out an important teaching that is worth briefly me mentioning. You know, what we see with John's disciples is something that is not uncommon today and I've already kind of alluded to. You know, being followers of John. They weren't completely ignorant, but they also weren't scholars. There were still some areas that they did not have a full grasp of. In that instance, the best thing that they could have done was just to sit in silence and learn rather than to go out and debate. Many times the truths of God can be hindered by the rashness of novices who have a lot of zeal, but very little prudence and discretion. Now, in this case, what business did they have to talk about matters that they did not understand? None at all. Would that have helped the Jews to understand the doctrine of Christ 
Or are they just creating more confusion? Now, this isn't to say that we don't ever talk to others about um, things that we have not 100% fully grasped, but we must be willing to sometimes just hold our tongue and say less than to keep talking and create more confusion. So we have John's disciples here debating, discussing with the Jew or a Jew in regards to purification. And then in verse 26, we see that they, they come to John and they say to him, Rabbi, that is teacher, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and, and all are coming to him. So essentially they're like, hey, teacher, hey, do you remember that guy that, that you'd baptized not that long ago, Jesus of Nazareth? You, you won't believe this. Him and his disciples, they're baptizing too. And not only that, but everyone is going to him. You know, again, just to remember the context of who John the Baptist was, you know, prior to Jesus' arrival, John was a pretty big deal. Never forget. He was doing things with the type of authority that reminded the Jews of the Old Testament prophets that they read about in the scriptures. Keep in mind, after the closing of the Old Testament canon with the book of Malachi, itself, we had hundreds of years, I want to say either 400 or 500 years of silence where there was no prophetic voice. So then now all of a sudden you have this man, John the Baptist, coming in the likeness of the prophet Elijah, preaching, repentance, baptizing people. So, you know, the people in that time weren't accustomed to someone like this because they hadn't seen someone like John the Baptist. They read of prophets like him in the scriptures, but they never seen a person like this. So as a result, John's name spread. His fame grew. People were coming to John to be baptized, and he was creating followers. Now that Jesus had arrived, however, that marked the beginning of the end of John's ministry. While he was still going out and fulfilling his ministry, he doesn't end really until he dies and gets executed. The type of influence that he once had was beginning to diminish. More and more people were starting to follow Christ, whom he had not baptized or he, whom he baptized not too long ago. Now, John's disciples had started to notice this change. Now, I'm, I'm sure for them, it was pretty cool maybe being one of the followers of this well-known person. While they weren't John the Baptist, you know, they were, being one of his disciples, you know, part of his crew, his entourage. And oftentimes, those who are part of a well-known person on, person's entourage, well, they get to enjoy some of the perks that, you know, that well-known person has. You know, for example, take today modern-day celebrities, you know, modern-day actors. You know, if you're part of their clique, of their crew, you're probably living nice. I remember many, many, many years ago, back when I was in college and I worked at a tuxedo shop, Cicino's Formal Wear, I remember I had a person come in to pick up a tuxedo for um, a former football player, Daryl Jackson, who actually used to play wide receiver uh, for, for the Seahawks not that long ago. Now, this guy wasn't Daryl Jackson, but he was part of his entourage, part of his crew. And even though I didn't get an opportunity to really have a very long conversation with this guy, you could tell that, you know, he was just happy to be associated with, you know, Daryl Jackson, who was at the time a pretty well-known person. And I'm sure John's disciples enjoyed being associated with John the Baptist. Maybe not all the time, because obviously we know what happened with John the Baptist. There probably wasn't that many perks Perhaps, I mean, certainly, you know, you know, if you were one of John the Baptist's uh, disciples, you didn't necessarily enjoy the type of food that he was eating, you know, locusts, maybe honey. Honey, I guess I'd be, I'd be pretty cool with, but then the locust side of things, not one of the perks I would have liked being one of his disciples. But John was a well-known person and they were associated with him. So the idea of John's influence starting to wane because someone else was becoming more popular, you know, probably didn't sit well with them. Not only that, but think about it. This person, Jesus, was increasing in popularity, doing the very thing that made John the Baptist well-known, baptizing people. So then I'm sure for John's disciples, they were like, well, how dare Jesus? How could he? Doesn't he know that that's what you do? 
Why is he letting his disciples do the thing that made you famous? I mean, you baptized him. Now he's trying to step on your territory. How dare Jesus? Now, I'm sure that in their minds, when they report all of this to John, when they tell John what's going on here, what Jesus is doing, they probably thought that John was going to respond with concern. However, John the Baptist answers them in a way that shows that he understood his role. And he wasn't envious, nor was he upset. And I want you to read or, or hear what John answers or how he answers in verse 27. John tells them this. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. So when John tells his disciples that a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven, he is telling them that what he has, it was because God chose to give it to him. If God chose to give John a large following, then all glory to God. If God chose to give John a small following, all glory to God. What John received had been given to him by God. Who was he to complain or decry the providence of God? And what John says here echoes what we read a future apostle write in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul, when he writes this, starting in verse 5, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. You know, in the ministry, you know, sometimes we can get so caught up in the numbers that we forget that God is the one who brings about growth or who brings about decrease. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't seek to find out, you know, why our church is or is not growing. That's not what I'm saying. Because, you know, sometimes there may be issues that need to be corrected. But if the reason for a decreasing influence or ministry is not because of some scandal, but rather the hand of God deciding that, hey, your time is done. Now it's time for someone else to shine. We can't become envious. God is the one who grows and God is the one who diminishes. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, he says this and I want to read it to you. This is what he writes. This single thought, if it were duly impressed on the minds of us all, would be abundantly sufficient for restraining ambition. And were ambition corrected and destroyed, the plague of contentions would likewise be removed. How comes it then that every man exalts himself more than is proper because we do not depend on the Lord so as to be satisfied with the rank which he assigns to us? Everyone wants to be the special person. Everyone wants to have... if. You, those of you who watched Nickelodeon back in the day, you know, the show Tyena, everyone wants to have their name in lights. And the reality of the fact is, is that that's not the case at all. Because it's not about us. God is the one who decides who he'll prosper and who he won't. Who he'll give a huge portion to and who he'll give a small portion this just reminds me of the parable of the talents. Remember, one was given five talents, one was given three talents, and one was given one talent. And what was the point of that parable? It wasn't, hey, look at the person with all these talents here. No, be faithful with what God has given you, whether it's a lot or whether it's a little. But when ambition comes in or pride, because, you know, the, the word ambition, depending on how we're looking at it, I mean, obviously, clearly, John is using it from a, from a context of pride. But when pride steps in, and now all of a sudden, you're like, wait, wait a minute, God, how come you're not blessing me as this person here? You're losing sight of what your role is. Matthew Henry, also commented, commenting on this passage, he puts it in this way. Aiming at the monopoly of honor and respect has been in all ages the bane of the church and the shame of its members and ministers, as also a vying of interest and a jealousy of rivalship and competition. We mistake if we think that the excelling gifts and graces and labors and usefulness of one are a diminution and disparagement to another that has obtained mercy 
to be faithful. For the Spirit is a free agent dispensing to everyone severally as he will. Paul rejoiced in the usefulness even of those that opposed him. We see in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. We must leave it to God to choose, employ, and honor his own instruments as he pleases and not covet to be placed alone. So in other words, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you having the shine, having the spotlight. As, again, you know, I truly think this section... So much of it applies, I, I, I'll be honest, in regards to, to myself as a minister. But again, there's applications elsewhere. But, you know, as you're studying this, you can't help but just think about the application personally. And as ministers of the gospel, we must remember this. And anyone else who is involved in a work for God must also remember this truth. We're not in competition with one another. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 9, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what does that mean? There's more than enough people that need to hear the gospel. So no one minister is taking territory from another minister. To think that way is to exalt yourself over God's kingdom. John the Baptist did not care that his ministry was decreasing. He was not jealous of the people going to Jesus. He wasn't upset. He knew that what he was given was because God chose to give it to him. If God is now choosing to give it to someone else, so be it, so long as God is glorified and worshipped. Also, too, John also knew that these people weren't just merely following just some random guy that just came onto the scene, but they were following the Messiah, the Son of God, and they were being influenced by him. So who was he to complain that they are now following after Christ? And then... He, matter of fact, he goes on and tells his own disciples, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said in verse 28, I am not the Christ, but I have been set ahead of him. So he acknowledges, I am not the Christ. I told you I wasn't the Messiah. Why are you shocked? People are following the Messiah and you're surprised. I told you I'm not him. He's him. And then he goes on to say in verse 29, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. I love the analogy that he gives here in regards to the bride and the bridegroom, because, you know, in a wedding, who is the bride for? The groom. Who is the groom for? The bride. The best man is there, but then the bride isn't for the best man. When the bride walks down the aisle, she is walking down to become one with who? The best man or or the groom? The groom. The best man stands next to the groom and is happy for the groom. What kind of friend would the best man be if he gets jealous because the attention of the bride is not on him, but on the groom? What kind of friend would the best man be if he tried to steal the spotlight from the bride or the groom? What kind of friend would the best man be if he tries to take the bride from the groom? Well, what do you think the groom is going to do to the best man that tries to take his bride from him? I love what uh, St. Augustine of Hippo um, says here, he had a a homily, a sermon that he gave on this section. And I just want to read you this little um, section from his homily. He writes this, he says, suppose that a man, having set out on a journey, had commended his bride to the care of his friend. See, I pray thee, thou art my dear friend, see to it, lest in my absence some other may perchance be loved in my stead. Then what sort of a person must he be who, while the guardian of the bride or wife of his friend, does indeed endeavor that none other be loved, but if he wishes himself to be loved instead of his friend, and desires to enjoy her who was committed to his care, how detestable must he appear to all mankind? Let him see her gazing out of the window or joking with someone somewhat too heedlessly. He forbids her as one who is jealous. I see him jealous, but let me see for whom he is jealous, whether for his absent friend or for his present self. 
So in other words, Augustine is saying, well, why are you upset? Are you upset because, with a, a, a holy righteous indignation because the groom, the bride, isn't truly taking delight in the groom? Or is that indignation coming because the bride isn't delighting in you? See, John the Baptist knew exactly who he was in relation to Christ. He was not the bridegroom. Therefore, that means the bride was not for him. The bride, that is the church, belonged to Christ. And if the groom had arrived and the church, as his bride, is now being drawn to him, what kind of person would John be to get upset? For John to get upset would be for John to want to take the bride for himself. Rather than John being upset, John says that his joy has been made full. He is rejoicing at the fact that people are following Jesus Christ. He isn't mad. He's ecstatic. And after saying that, John goes on to say that Christ must increase, but he must decrease. See, there can't be two grooms. There can't be two messiahs. There can't be two centers of attention. John must take a step back in order for Christ to shine. You know, whether you're a minister, whether you're a parent, whether you're a spouse, there is something that we can all learn here from John's response. And I want you to understand that. He understood that the people that he was reaching and converting were not for him, but for Christ. As such, his ultimate aim was that they be united to Christ and grow in Christ. Them growing in Christ may come at his expense. But that doesn't matter because, see, they're growing in Christ. If you remember a few sermons back in chapter 1, when we had the disciples of John seeing Jesus, hearing Jesus speak, leaving John the Baptist, and following Jesus, John the Baptist doesn't get upset at that. John the Baptist doesn't get mad because his disciples left him to follow Christ. No, no, he doesn't. He doesn't go to them and tell them, how dare you leave me? I taught you everything that you knew. No. See, they may have been his disciples, but they were Christ's bride. While John may have liked that his ministry was growing, his aim wasn't to see his ministry grow. His aim was to see people come to Christ. So ask yourself this important question. What is your aim? If you're in the ministry, what is your aim? Is it to see people grow in Christ or is it merely just to see your ministry grow in numbers? When people think of the ministry, do you want them to think of Christ or yourself? If you are a parent, what is your aim? Is it to see your children come to Christ and follow him or is it to see them follow you? If the spiritual growth of your children as parents or laymen as ministers comes at the expense of perhaps your influence maybe maybe diminishing a little bit. Are you pleased with that or are you upset? Must you be at the center of everything or will you allow for Christ to take the center stage and you take a back seat? Matthew Henry, again, he commenting, he writes this, he writes, if our diminution or abasement may be in the, may be in the least con contribute to the advancement of Christ's name, we must cheerfully submit to it and be content to be anything, to be nothing, so that Christ may be all. I mean, that, that's a very humbling statement by Matthew Henry. We must be willing to see our potential influence and fame diminish if it helps advance Christ's name and his kingdom. So John says, he, Christ, must increase. I must, not my, not may, I must decrease. And then John goes on to say, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. All. In other words, he's saying Christ has the preeminence. 
No one else but Christ. Only Christ came from above. This echoes what we heard last Lord's Day in John chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. John, the Baptist is of the earth. While God certainly used John and filled him with the Holy Spirit, he was still of the earth. He paled in comparison to the Son of God who descended from on high. So going back to the previous verse, verse 30, when John says that he must decrease and Christ must increase, please understand that he never thought that they were on the same plane and that he's decreasing in order for Christ to increase. Rather, see, he knew that Christ was always above him. Matter of fact, we, we see this um, when you go back to the prologue of this gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 15, where John testifies and he says, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So John always knew his place in relation to Christ. And being that Christ came from heaven, he was above John. And John knew that very well. And that's why he was willing to take a step back in order for Christ to step forward. Now, after John says this, we read that we see that he um, goes on to tell his disciples in verses 32 and 33. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Keep in mind, in that covenant of redemption, where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where they lay out the plan of salvation. Remember, the Son, Jesus, was part of that covenant. And as such, when Jesus comes into the world to announce that he has arrived to save us from our sins, if we believe in him, he is not announcing this as merely a messenger, but as an eyewitness and a member of the eternal covenant being made. Now, sadly, as the Apostle John mentions in his prologue, and as we see here, not all who hears this message receives this message. But those who have received this message as true have the Holy Spirit in them confirming this as true. So then after John says this, then we read the Baptist going on and saying this in verses 34 and 35. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Now this section here speaks to the uniqueness of the son we see in verse 34 him talking about that the father giving the spirit without measure now even though at least in the translation that i have which is the new american standard it doesn't say explicitly who this is we can certainly infer from this that he's talking about jesus that the father gives Jesus, the Son, the Spirit, without measure. And actually, um, other translations, such as the King James and the Geneva, does make um, that specificity there. But then how we can be certain in regards to this, that the Father gives the Son, the Spirit, without measure, all you got to do is just look throughout the Scriptures. Because, see, throughout the Scriptures... In particular, we see this in the Old Testament. We see people who they were given a measure of this of the spirit to exercise an important role. However, that spirit that they were given to exercise an important role does not remain on them. And then I'm, I'm going to explain all of this because I do not want for us to confuse this with the spirit coming upon us as a seal for our redemption. That's not what he's talking about here. But for example, you have Saul, King Saul. In the Old Testament, the perfect example of this, if you, if you go back and you read 1 Samuel, in particular 1 Samuel chapter 10, we read of Saul being moved by the Spirit to the point of even prophesying in God's name. So much so that the people were saying, is not Saul among the prophets? But then we read further in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God removing the Spirit from him. We see with Elijah and Elisha, after Elijah goes to be with the Lord, Elisha asking to receive a double portion of the Spirit to do the works that Elijah was doing. So we see 
in these passages accounts of people receiving a measure of the Spirit in order to fulfill a particular role, a particular calling. Now, as I mentioned, that is not to be confused with us as believers receiving the Holy Spirit, having the Holy Spirit dwelling within us as a seal of the redemption that we have, because we know from that instance, the the Spirit never departs from us. But however, what we're seeing here, and this is what I want for us to understand, when he's talking about the Spirit being given without measure, he's talking about in order to accomplish a specific role, a specific um, duty and obligation. And in... um, when it comes to Christ, he has, he's received that spirit without measure, whereas for us, that is not the case. Matter of fact, again, to really help, I hope to kind of crystallize what I'm trying to get at here. If you have your Bibles, take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, because here, actually, the Apostle Paul really helps to, to clarify what I'm trying to say and what I believe is meant when we look at um, the passage in John 3, 34. So again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, listen to this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And listen to this in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Or to put it another way, to each is given a measure of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So one person is given a measure of the Spirit um, for wisdom. Another is given um, a measure of the Spirit um, in order to, um, to, to, to give knowledge. Another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healings by the, same, by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another various kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. So the one Spirit, the one Holy Spirit, everyone is empowered by that one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the same one Spirit gives to each member within the body of Christ a measure of the Spirit. No one individual receives the complete fullness of the Holy Spirit in this context for the purpose of work within the church. Hence why, on a side note, why being a member of a church is so important to be a part of. But see, with Jesus, and that's the point that, the, that John the Baptist is getting at here, that is not the case. With Jesus, what we received in part, he received without measure. Not only that, but that empowering of the Spirit never departs from him. The prophet Isaiah alludes to this in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, where the the prophet writes, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So we see it being prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. The spirit resting on this shoot that will spring from the stem of Jesse, or obviously being and alluding to Jesus Christ. And then if you recall, in the baptism of Jesus Christ, what happens? You have the Spirit descending on him as a dove, resting on him. Again, Matthew Henry commenting, he he puts it in this way. He says, the Old Testament prophets had the Spirit and in different degrees. But whereas God gave them the Spirit by measure, he gave him to Christ without measure. All fullness dwelt in him. The fullness of the Godhead in immeasurable fullness. And I love what he he wrote here. He said, the Spirit was not in Christ as in a vessel, but as in a fountain, as in a bottomless ocean. If you really understand what's being indicated here, you know, this, this fullness of the Holy Spirit, that's in Christ, him receiving the Spirit without measure. This is what separates Jesus from everyone else. This, as a matter of fact, is what attests to Jesus being not just the man, but God. So then he tells him that Jesus, the Son, receives the Spirit without measure. Again, 
John the Baptist is trying to show his disciples that, hey, I am not the Christ here. And then he's showing them through these examples here, really trying to lay the point perfectly clear who this person is that the people are leaving him to follow. And then he says in verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. All things. The love that the father has for the son moves him to give him all things. As a matter of fact, what we receive as believers comes from that fullness that Christ has. John 1 verse 16, for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And then in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 36, we read this. Peter testifying, saying, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So Christ has poured forth the Spirit. John the Baptist acknowledges all of this as it pertained to Christ. He was above all. He came down from heaven. He had the Spirit without measure. The Father gave to Jesus all things, not John. John, like us, are the benefactors of the blessings lavished upon Christ by the Father. And see, and it was that understanding that John the Baptist had that kept him from ever becoming envious of the growing ministry that was taking place with Jesus. And then, after saying all of this, John closes his testimony to his disciples by reminding them of this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Not him. In the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides in him. So he tells his disciples, he, he finishes his discourse by pointing them to Christ. Believe in him, not me. In him you have eternal life. If you believe that he is sent from God and you obey him, you have eternal life. If you reject him, you'll experience God's wrath. See, eternal life is not contingent on believing us, but in believing Jesus. Therefore, we always have to point people to Jesus. It is in him that we have eternal life. John's disciples would have never obtained eternal life if they believed in John the Baptist and not Jesus the Messiah. Likewise, eternal life will be obtained by no other name but by the name of Jesus. So we must always point people to Christ. If they believe in Christ, praise God, they have eternal life. If a person rejects the name of Christ, then what they can expect is not God's love, but rather God's wrath. Now, the wrath of God is not something that we only just find in the Old Testament where God was very, very mean and had a temper tantrum. But then even in the New Testament, we find that those who fail to believe in the Son can only expect the eternal wrath of God. Matter of fact, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, in a passage written to people within the covenant community, these words starting in verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on a testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. See, that's in the New Testament. 
not in the old. So we see in John's final testimony, both his humility in submitting to the passing away of his ministry and his enduring desire to point even those who remained with him to Christ. John understood that while he had an important ministry, he was not the focal point of the ministry. Jesus Christ was that focal point. It was Jesus that was the bridegroom. John was merely pointing people to him. His job was never to permanently have a supreme role, but rather to fulfill his calling and fade into the background so that Christ can shine. That's what he did. And see, all of us, whether you're ministers or parents or husbands or anything else for the kingdom, you need to have that mindset that John had. God may very well use us mightily for his kingdom, but we must never forget that we are just his servants. We are only doing what God calls us to do. We can't lose sight of the fact of who is above all. It's Jesus Christ. Therefore, if we must decrease in order for Christ to increase in a ministry or in the lives of those whom we've been leading, then so be it. All glory to God. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that you now abdicate your responsibilities if you still have responsibilities. Rather, it does mean that all that you all that God calls you to do, do that all that God calls you to do, excuse me, and then when it's time to step away and let God take over, do it with the joy of knowing that you did what you were commissioned to do and that Jesus will do what he was commissioned to do. I want you to take the mindset that we see in the scriptures in a passage such as Luke, verses 17, verse 10, where Jesus, in a parable, says this, So you too, when you do all the things which you are commanded, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we have ought to have done. That's the mindset that you ought to have. That's the mindset that John the Baptist had. That's the mindset that we need to have. We are unworthy worthy slaves. We are unworthy servants. See, we are only doing, God, what you have called for us to do. And if our job is done, and now we must step aside, decrease so that you may increase, solely Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Let us pray. <clears throat>